And welcome. Uh, hi, I'm Mike Lewis, and I'm here with David D.W. Lafferty. Uh, we are The Critical Catholic. Um, we are uh, a show, a live stream show, dedicated to uh, helping Catholics think critically about issues such as conspiracy theories, cutting through rumors, uh, and, and finding the truth, focusing on the truth. Um, Today is a part two of our conversation, hopefully our concluding part of the conversation on the uh, conspiracy theories and rumors surrounding the death of Pope John Paul I. Uh, Pope John Paul I was Pope for, for 33 days in uh, 1978. He was elected after the death of Pope St. Paul VI. And uh, after his death on September 28th of that year, uh, Pope John Paul II was elected uh, and took the same name. So, David, welcome. Hey, Mike. How are Happy, things? Good. Happy Father's oh, yeah. Day. Do you, is it happy Father's, Father's Day in Day. Canada? Or it is. Happy? It is. Yeah. And so happy Father's Day to you as well. And happy Father's Day to all the dads out there watching. That's right. Uh, Hopefully you uh, a good day. Hopefully you were given the opportunity. Maybe your children got you a, a, a Patreon uh, subscribership to where Peter is. Uh, Perfect Father's gift. Day, Perfect Father's Day gift. Perfect I gift. Think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, get your father something to help him learn about the Holy Father. And happy Father's Day to Pope Francis. And yes, Pope Emeritus Benedict, who's still plugging along. He is. Over eight years later. Wow. <laughs> So, uh, so David, um, I was thinking that in this uh, episode, first, you know, we talked about the the sequence of events surrounding the death of uh, John Paul I, that basically went to bed the evening of uh, September twenty seventh at nine twenty p.m. I think is the the timeline, and <laughs> that or that was the last time he was seen, and then he was discovered in the early morning hours. Yeah, and sorry. It was it was actually I should say it was it was September twenty eighth um, that he allegedly died. It was that evening, and then it was September 29th when he was found dead. So sorry, there was a little a little uh, confusion there. Oh, um, so they're thinking he died the, eleven p.m. or something like that. Is that the so the official date of death would be that he died they, after he went to bed? Estimated, or, yes, yeah. yeah. And there, there's a lot of again, there's a lot of controversy about that um because you know it's it's difficult to determine so, uh, so we could do a whole episode on whether his official date of death should be the 29th <laughs> rather yes. than the 28th or the 28th yeah i don't it's, know i think uh, i'm gonna push tricky. for the 29th to be the official date just to be yeah i, I think that's safe <laughs> that's when his body was discovered that's we know for sure that you know he was definitely deceased by the 29th so um that that works, um, but you know this is this is something that you can dig into endlessly. Um, uh, it, it, it's that kind of old style conspiracy theory where there's, you know, just this infinite number of factors and elements that can be examined from all different perspectives, and there's lots of conflicting narratives. There's lots of data that you can look at, but nothing that, that gives you like the full clear picture. So it's, you know, it, it's really reminiscent of, of stuff like, you know, JFK assassination stuff, although JFK, JFK really was assassinated, but um, in the, in the way that, you know, people can really dig into this um, in a, 
semi-legitimate way because you're often dealing with with stuff that actually was reported stuff that you know th there is a sort of factual basis for it but there's a lot of conflicting information there so it's a little different from some of the conspiracy theories that we look at where there's just nothing you know nothing solid to grab onto a lot of it is just kind of fantasy um or just rumor but yeah this is one of those ones where you can really dig into it and we were thinking you know maybe we could because we weren't 100% clear maybe last time about the circumstances around it surrounding his death before we get into the other aspect of what we want to talk about with with John Paul uh the first which is the stuff with freemasons stuff with financial corruption that that all could potentially have played into this um we, we thought maybe it would be a good idea to just go through the the timeline um and, and just to, to to make that clear because maybe we we kind of skipped over it a little bit uh last episode um maybe before we do that though i should we'll do a, a quick prayer to uh to get us uh get us started um in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, please guide us in our discussion, help us to dispel confusion, discern fact from fiction, and to cleave to the truth. Allow us to contribute to the creation of a healthy Catholic media culture. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So um, I have the David Yallop book, and the, the David Yallop book is the uh, In God's Name. I think, uh, yeah, you've got it there. Perfect. Thanks, Mike. Um, that is the the book that that, that kind of set off the official um, uh, conspiracy theory regarding uh, John Paul the uh, the first, and it's still you know the central text. And I believe it's it's pretty easily accessible still. Um, obviously, yeah. not recommending it as a source of truth, but it, you know, just to set, satiate your curiosity or to you know, for your own personal study or just to see his point of view and give him a hearing, um, it's it's readily available. I think it's even on Kindle for you know only something like five dollars. So it was, I mean, it was a bestseller yeah. and it flooded the marketplace in the early eighties and. Um, you can still get a copy of it pretty easily. You could probably find it in a lot of used bookstores these days. It's that kind of, you know, best-selling paperback that uh, a lot of people, you know, were reading in airports and things like that <laughs> or on, on the beach back in the day. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's readily available. It actually is a good read. And if you take it with a, a big grain of salt, um, realizing that he's really got this idea that he wants to prove that that uh, Pope John Paul I was murdered. There's actually a lot of really interesting information in there. You just want to double check everything. And one thing I should mention about the Allet book, he reconstructs conversations that he thinks ha had happened. So he, you know, he learned of say a meeting between uh, John Paul I and Cardinal Vio, and then he kind of reconstructs what they might have talked about, but he presents it and he mentions that at the very beginning, but he presents it in the book as if you, you might mistake this for like documented, a documented like, conversation. This yeah. is what happened next. Yeah. If you didn't yeah, read at the but, beginning of the book that he said that stuff is all made up then. Yeah. Yeah. So you really gotta, you gotta, you gotta know that um, ahead of time. So just, but if you just look at the facts he presents and you can challenge those facts, absolutely. That it's a good starting point for looking into all this anyway. Um, so uh, according to his timeline, um, it, it was September 28th, 1978, when uh, John Paul I uh, 
uh, went to bed uh, in the, uh, the, the papal apartments. Um, he had uh, beside his bed, again, again, this is all according to Yallop, so this is, gets challenged all the time. He had uh, an alarm clock and a bottle of a medicine called Effortil that he used um, to, for his uh, low blood pressure. Um, and then the only other things he was taking were, uh, uh, at that time, apparently were some vitamins and adrenal injections again for uh, his his low blood pressure. But that this, those were those injections weren't weren't a regular thing. So he goes to bed. In the morning, um, a, uh, a sister Vincenza comes at four thirty a.m. as usual um, to put. Uh, a flask of coffee outside of, of the room and uh, to, to knock on the door uh, to wake him up. And I think what usually would happen is she'd knock on the door, she'd go away, he would eventually come out and have his coffee. Um, but she left, then she came back at, at 4.45, so 15 minutes later, the coffee was still there. Nothing, no one had, uh, hadn't been disturbed. He was not a guy who would uh, would usually sleep in. So she knocks, um, no answer. She uh, she enters the bedroom, and uh, I'll just I'll just quote from from Yalop's book here. Uh, quote: uh, Opening the door, she saw Albino Luciani sitting up in bed. He was wearing his glasses, and gripped in his hands were some sheets of paper. His head was turned to the right, and lips were parted, showing his teeth. It was not the smiling face that that had so impressed the millions, but an expression of agony. And she feels his pulse. Um, that's the end of the quote. She feels his pulse. She realizes uh, that that he's dead, and she goes to um, wake up a number of of people who were in the the vicinity uh, sleeping at the time. And uh, one of those is uh, Don. Diego Lorenzi, and he's actually the first, apparently, to enter the bedroom after her and see uh, his body. And then the next person to to come in is Father McGee. Um, and and I, I'm, I can't remember now exactly how Lorenzi and McGee are related to um, the Pope at this um, McGee point. McGee was the secretary, I believe. Secretary. Yes. Okay. I think he was the secretary. Yeah. Um, Father McGee telephones the Secretary of State, Cardinal Vio, who is two floors below. And Vio comes up by five o'clock in the morning and confirms that, that uh, the Pope is dead. And now again, according this is according to Yallop's narrative of what he believes happened. Vio took the medicine that was on the uh, uh, side table and puts it in his pocket and uh, removes uh, a number of other things that, that were supposed to have been there. Apparently his will was supposed to have been at his desk. Um, his glasses and his slippers are removed. Um, and then again, according to Yallop, uh, VO basically tells everyone assembled there a story about how we're gonna say the Pope died and swears everyone to silence um, as to anything that they saw. And so they kind of have to follow the um, the narrative. And then he starts making uh, phone calls. So he calls, apparently, um, I'm going to mess his name up, but Cardinal 
Confalonieri, um, who was the dean of the Sacred College, then Cardinal Casaroli, um, and then uh, a number of others, including Dr. Renato Buzanetti, who is the deputy head of the Vatican Health Service. So Buzanetti, um, I believe, comes to the uh, location. And let me just make sure. Yeah, it does a, a brief examination of the body. Um, and according to Buzanetti, the death is caused by, and I'm quoting here from Yallop's book, uh, acute myocardial infarction, so a heart attack. And the doctor puts the time of death at about 11 p.m. on the previous evening. That's all a, a quote from the book. Um, now, Yallop says that it's impossible to determine um, the time of death through such a brief examination. Um, and, and it sounds like that might actually be true, that this is not something that can be done all that all that easily. Um, now, once everything is sort of under control, and it seems to be Cardinal Vio is leading this whole operation. So what time in the morning are we talking at this point? We're still... Um, apparently most people did not even know that he had died by around seven o'clock in the morning. Um, it was still, um, you know, under wraps, but, um, although, uh, it, it appears the news was kind of spreading around the Vatican. Um, actually, uh, yeah. Yallop says the news was starting to spread through the Vatican village. Now, this is a, an important detail for the sort of conspiracy angle. He says, in the courtyard near the Vatican Bank, Sergeant Rogan, um, I guess a guard there, met Bishop Paul Marchinkus. Um, and Paul Marchinkus, we'd mentioned last time, he was the head of the Vatican Bank. It was 6.45 a.m. And Yallop asks, what the president of the Vatican Bank, who lives in the uh, Villa Stritch on Via della Nocetta in Rome and is not a renowned early riser, was doing in the Vatican so early remains a mystery. So now I've heard that, uh, I haven't read his book, but John Cornwell, who wrote a book that would refute some of these ideas, apparently said that Paul Marchinkus, although he was spotted at this time, um, actually was an early riser and this was his usual um, time for for. for um, you know, entering the uh, coming near to coming to the Vatican Bank. Um, so it, it there's a lot of again conflicting reports about some of this stuff. Now, the official um, announcement that I believe it's released by by Cardinal Vio that, that's put out is that, and again I'll quote it here: This morning, September 29th, 1978, about 5:30, the private secretary of the Pope. Um, contrary to custom, not having found the Holy Father in the chapel of his private apartment, looked for him in his room and found him dead in bed with the light on, like one who was intent on reading. The physician, Dr. Renato Buzanetti, who hastened at once, verified the death, which took place presumably towards 11 o'clock yesterday evening, as sudden death that could be related to acute myocardial infarction. Now, apparently later statements come out that this was Father McGee who had discovered him, and uh, also that the Pope had been reading *The Imitation of Christ*, um, which was apparently his his favorite book. 
now we we were talking about this last week too how this this turned out not to be true that um at least according to yallop he was not discovered by father mcgee um he was not found reading the imitation of christ it turned out to be it, it's still unclear it, it was either um uh, some papers that were related to sermons that he was or, or homilies that he was going to looking over um or according to yallop it was some plans that he had laid out for curial um, rearrangements within the Vatican. Um, so again, it's, you could probably um, dig for a long time trying to figure this stuff out. Um, I know John Cornwell apparently did some good work um, debunking some of this, showing that uh, Yallop was actually relying on some erroneous news reports and some of his um, details. So it's not like Yallop was making things up, but he didn't realize that some of the news reports that were coming out were mistaken. And I mean, we see this when when things happen like around, um, you know, we, we have like things like say, like like a mass shooting or, or things like that that happen. There's all sorts of reports that come out all at once. Some of them turn out to be faulty or the the information is, is mixed up. Um, you know, some people originally they may say that oh, there's two shooters at this uh, you know event, and then they correct it, and it's one shooter. But the conspiracy theorists will always look at that. Oh, some at one point they reported there were two shooters. That must mean something. But no, it's just usually with any kind of event like this where everything's breaking all at once, you get um, some faulty news report. So I think that's something to always keep in mind. And there was a lot less coordination back then, then there, you know, I mean, once something's in, really you had to wait until something went into print. And so if you're working for a, you know, if you're covering the Vatican for a different Italian outlet, then you've got someone covering that, the Vatican for for the Washington Post or for, you know, people are, are you know, you, you're going to, you're going to file the story when you file the story and, and, you know, you're going to do your best as a journalist, but different versions come out or new info you might miss the new information or you might mishear something and it's not like you yeah. can issue a, a correction to uh to the like nowadays you know you read even like catholic news outlets that'll that'll revise a story that's that's you know they post a claim like i wrote about that the claim that uh cna had that biden uh was going to uh meet with Pope Benedict, Pope it was, or Pope Francis. It was Pope their Francis, breaking yeah. news just last week. And they were the only people on the planet who reported that Biden was even going to go to Rome. So it's like they, you know, they, but then really the story that they were trying to transmit was that uh, Biden's, uh, the Biden administration had requested that um, Biden attend mass at Casa Santa Marta, uh, you know, with uh with pope Bene with pope francis why am i saying benedict with yeah. pope francis <laughs> and um and he was denied so that was supposed to send us yeah. have sent a signal to the u.s bishops that uh you know of whatever francis's opinion was but you know i i read it and i'm like wait they have biden going to going to rome that's not on his itinerary how did they get this story you know and um yeah. Meanwhile, but Biden's then, off in you know, Russia or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But then a few hours later, uh, the you know they just sort of scrubbed that, you know, that whole part about yeah. him, and they changed it to an early version of his plans, and the link redirected you to a whole new version of the story. Well, Yallop is going through the contemporary newspaper clippings at the time, and once yeah. it's in print, it's set. 
So there's yeah. no um, there's no way to know whether it was verified or fact checked or whether you know unless somebody goes and does the digging to find out whether there was a correction in the next edition of the newspaper, you're not going to know uh, b purely based on that what happened. That's yeah, that's the thing, and we got to remember because I, I I really don't I don't I wouldn't put Yallop in the in the class of conspiracy theorists who are being irrational or or who are just maliciously making things up. I think he really believed in what he was saying. Um, and I could see how when you start digging into all this stuff and, you know, you think like, oh, the puzzle pieces are coming together, it, it may convince you that, you know, something sinister happened here. Um, but yeah, I think he's he was working with the materials he had at the time, which were... Um, you know, very different from what we have today. Like you said, it's it's clippings and um, you often don't have access to all of them either. Like it's very difficult to track down. You would have had to track down all this stuff um, in libraries or um, through your own clippings and things like that. Microfiche. And there's no, there's, fiche, no, yeah. there's no Google Translate. So you're looking at Italian newspapers and, um, you know, it's it. And then you have to do some, you have to either, if you don't speak Italian, you have to have a, you know, an Italian translator come in and, uh, you know, maybe do your, or hire a research assistant that knows Italian yeah. and can translate it into English or. Um, and um, it, it appears anyway, I, I'm assuming he's telling the truth that, um, that he interviewed many, many people, even people who were directly involved in a lot of this. Um, so he, he did his work like a journalist would, you know, like the kind of the footwork basically. So it's different. It's again, different from the kind of conspiracy theory where people are just, you know, grabbing and or cutting and pasting things from, you know, blogs and Twitter and, and then throwing it all together into something, um, you know, while they're on their computer at four o'clock in the morning. So yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a little different, a different sort of thing, but I still think it, it is conspiracy theory nevertheless. Um, so that gives us, you know, uh, just a framework to, to to think about when we're thinking about the actual death. And and I, sh I forgot to mention too that the there was you know controversy about the embalming, which happened very quickly. So I believe it was on the night of the 29th that the embalming, at least according to Yallop, that the embalming process started. Um, and according to him. They did not, I guess, as as they normally would do, drain all the blood from the body. So I guess the, the normal procedure is to, you drain the blood from the body, replace it with, you know, a chemical fluid or some kind of thing that, that helps Embalming it. fluid. Embalming fluid, essentially, <laughs> yes. So now with this process that they used, I don't know the details, but they apparently left the blood in the body. Now he believes that's because they didn't want anyone to be able to test the blood um, because testing it might have shown that there was poison in it. Um, so that's at least that's how I interpreted it. Um, and there's his tomb in the crypt at St. Peter's. Um, yes. Yeah. Now, I don't know if so. Uh, I'd like to share on the timeline. Um, in the comments, hold on, I'm going to paste it right here. This is actually an article um, from Crisis Magazine in 2003. Now, keep in mind, Crisis Magazine in 2003 uh, was a much different, uh, much different publication than it is today. It was yes. largely like a neocon. Uh, I mean, people like uh, Michael Novak and and 
I mean, even Phyllis Sagano wrote for it in the early days. I think this was in the, yeah. I guess in 03, it might've been the Deal Hudson era, but it wasn't. Um, so this article is written by Sandra Misel, who uh, wrote one of my favorite articles of all time from Crisis Magazine, which was actually taken down from their website, um, basically telling this whole story of uh, Catholic conspiracy theories and and kind of how ridiculous they are. And it's funny because about two or three years ago, um, she had criticized the remnant in the article and the remnant started this campaign to have that article taken down from their website, from Crisis's website, which they did because now, uh, because Crisis's current management is a bunch of conspiracy theorists. <laughs> so, I mean, it's the funny thing is like Crisis, the title, of the magazine, it was meant to be ironic. It was sort of like neocons or, uh, you know, more uh, sophisticated conservatives who um, laughed about reactionaries who, you know, ran around with their hair on fire and said everything was a crisis. They were they were supposed to bring balance. Uh, nowadays, I think they mean it sincerely, unfortunately. Um, but anyway, so this article here actually compares the two books, the Yallop and Cornwell books. And I thought I would just read, and this is her summary. This isn't a quote from the actual book. Um, but this is this is what, what Cornwell concluded happened. And this adds a, another little wrinkle to it. Cornwell assumes that Lorenzi was out until midnight while McGee stayed up late reading about papal deaths. And the, and the thing is, uh, Cornwell had reconstructed how actually they talked about, um, John Paul talked about dying at dinner that night. Um, McGee thought to check on the Pope en route to his own room. He saw the light on and walked in to find the Pope dead in a pitiful heap on the floor, an unseemly end. He waited for Lorenzi and together they propped the Pope up on his bed with pillows as if reading. Without thinking to offer the last rites, they left the body to be found the next morning, not anticipating that Sister Vincenza would make the discovery first. So he thinks that the most plausible explanation, and I guess this is why the time, and also the time of death is given, um, you know, before midnight on the 28th, uh, is that he was found on the floor, uh, the secretaries. In, a, in an attempt to create a little bit of theater or, or to, to make it seem more dignified, propped him up in bed with reading material or, you know, whatever it was. And then, but the thing is the first person to notice it in the morning, Sister Vincenza. So and in, 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 in a way that actually fits with Yallop's <laughs> timeline, because he, I mean, he just didn't think that he didn't know potentially that if this is true that uh that the body was discovered before uh sister vincenza found him so they might have propped him up put him in the bed then she came at her usual time um with his coffee and all all of the things that that followed happened and it, it, it would it would explain a fair bit and i mean to me that kind of explanation does fit with the sort of vatican culture where they try to present the Pope in the most positive possible way. And you're always trying to like um, manage the image of the papacy and, and that sort of thing where, so when things like this happen, they might actually consider doing something like that. We can't have the Pope be 
be found dead on the floor, curled up. We got to get him into bed. We got to prop him up with something in his hands, you know, like that sort of, that sort of thing. And, uh, and, and that, that to me seems very plausible. Unfortunately, it also gives a lot of ammunition to people who um, think that something shady was going on because, you know, there was a little bit of cover up and a little bit of, of lying potentially that was going on there. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's always my preference is just, you know, tell people the truth and then, you know, yeah. then, then you don't have to worry about any of this stuff, even if it's, if it's not the prettiest, you know, thing, you know, I mean, the funny thing is nowadays you can really see where these things are headed. I think in the pre-internet era, you didn't, you know, but when somebody is first exposed and they give sort of a partial explanation or, um, yeah. it, I mean, you can, I, someone that's, discriminating somebody who's thinking about you know what's really going on here or why did this person say it that way um it's like just just pull the band-aid off tell the whole tell the yeah. whole story from the beginning people die you know and, and yeah. actually i think john paul ii despite the fact that they added some last words that he couldn't possibly have said um he showed the world that a pope is a person a pope grows yeah. old, uh, you know, experiences ailments. I mean, I remember in the 90s, it took them a really long time to admit that he had Parkinson's yeah. long after anyone saw it or long after everyone pretty much knew that's what he had. It took them. For, but then towards the end, I think it became very clear that um, that, it, you know, he, he just just let people know how he's doing, you know, don't don't put up a, a, a false facade and I mean, still was, granted he, he's issuing encyclicals and making appointments, you know, yeah. in, from, you know, in that condition. There, but there was a lot of illusion behind the papacy anyway, like, especially when it comes to encyclicals, we imagine the Pope writes everything and, you know, it's not always the case. And um, so the, I think, you know, like there's a really good point with, with John Paul II, you know, that, that was really powerful at the time. I remember it very well when, when he was so sick and ailing, but he was still making these public appearances. And it was, it was disconcerting at first, you know, cause he was, I mean, essentially dying in, on, you know, in front of the world slowly. Uh, and, but it really showed that there's a dignity in death, even though, of course, you know, I remember South Park and stuff did stuff kind of mocking him. And, um, you know, you get that well, as probably well, because it was so, it was so bold and it was so unprecedented. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that, and, and I mean, granted, people a lot of times when they're dying, they you know, it, it's not like there's much good happening when you're putting them out. You know, yeah, I, I, I mean, but what tends to happen is you don't hear from somebody, you know, when it's a public figure, it's like, oh, they're out there. And, you know, I'm just a name comes to mind, like Regis Philbin, you know, he was yeah. everywhere in the media. Then he retires. He's still making some appearances. Then you don't hear from from Regis for a couple of years. And then you find out that he's passed away. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm sure, you know, I love Regis. I don't you know, but it's it's. <laughs> It's sort of like we didn't actually see those those very last phases of his life. So we still have yeah. these memories of him as this um, energetic, you know, boisterous uh, man. And I think a lot of people don't don't quite understand, you know, aren't comfortable with the idea of of those last days, weeks, months. And I think yeah. I think John Paul really uh, 
brought those. I think we need that kind of honesty. Yeah. Nowadays we're, we're a little more comfortable with that. We've seen people, you know, bear themselves, you know, in these kind of ways on television or, uh, you know, in just in the public and, and John Paul II was probably, you know, the most prominent person to do that, to, to really age and suffer in front of the world like that. Um, it's very, very powerful. But yeah, okay. so anyway, the, but let's, yeah, let's but that, that explains. <laughs> let's, we'll, we'll get back. What we should do, I think, is we should look at the other angle on this, um, which is the, this is actually the, really the bulk of the Yellow book. And this is the stuff that has spawned a lot of follow-up um, and what really got conspiracy, other conspiracy theorists interested in this and just the general public interested in this. And this is the, angle that involves what, I, what I'm going to call a triangle of corruption that surrounded um, the Vatican at that time. So this one's a bit harder to explain because there's so many elements to it, but so I'm going to present it in really simple terms and see if it comes across, you know, as something that can be understood. It, it gets so complex, uh, but I got to admit, like when I was re reading this stuff, I was like, oh, I'm getting a little red pilled on this. This is, you know, I'm starting to get into this now. Um, now I can, now I'm pulled back a little bit and I'm like, okay, okay. Uh, but it, it is fascinating stuff. So it involves Freemasonry, but not in the way one might expect. So this involves a specific Masonic lodge in Italy that was called Propaganda Due or uh, P2. So just a, a little background on Freemasonry in Italy. Now I actually watched a, on Zoom, a lecture that I found on, on or sorry, a lecture I found on YouTube that had been conducted over Zoom to you a group. You need to send me a link to this one. It's, it's great. It was, it was fantastic. It was a group of Freemasons. I think they were in Scotland. So it's all these, it's like about 30 old guys on their, um, you know, on their Zoom stuff, you know, some of them have a pipe and stuff and they're just kind of watching. And there's a guy who comes on and he's, I guess he's a, a history, a, a, he's an expert in, in Masonic history and he goes around lecturing to different Masonic lodges. And for whatever reason, they broadcast this live on on, uh, on YouTube and it was actually a very good um, discussion uh, or a very good presentation. And he was, he presented P2. He said, like, let's talk about what this P2 is. And they were all fascinated because this really P2 doesn't actually have anything to do with what you would call like mainstream Freemasonry. So Italy is a country where Freemasonry did play an important historic role. And that actually helps explain a little bit the, the emphasis on Freemasonry and some of the papal writings, especially like in the 19th century, because this is when that influence was at its peak. So around the time of unification, so um, this is in the sort of a little past mid 19th century, um, when, when Italy is uniting and you have Italian nationalism on the rise, um, Freemasonry is a big part of this. So I think that Freemasonry provided a space that was sort of hidden from the church where people could discuss these ideas about like democracy and equality and those kind of things. And this is the typical sort of Freemason stuff, but there was a, a very specifically revolutionary undercurrent with Italian Freemasonry, um, maybe a little different from like British or American style Freemasonry. Yeah. Um, and if I could, I guess, jump in here, yeah, kind of yeah. a little bit of the history. Um, so Freemasonry, well, except for those of you who 
maybe think that it started as a, an ancient craft, <laughs> the stonemasons back in the medieval era. Um, the United Grand Lodge in England, in London, was sort of the, the home base of Freemasonry. And it was founded uh, in the 18th century, 1717, um, or at least that's the date that they, they claim it was founded. Um, that's the kind of Freemasonry that like the founding fathers were were part of in the US, a lot of them, George Washington. Um, and one of the requirements of that of that branch of, of Freemasonry, of the Freemasonry that's descended from that lodge, is actually you have to be a, a theist. You have to believe that God exists. Now, there was another lodge in France, in Paris, called the Grand Orient Lodge. And there's a branch of Freemasonry or a part of Freemasonry. There, I guess these Masons don't like each other. I don't know if there's been any violence or conspiracism between the two because, you know, from the outside, we're looking at it as it's all kind of the same thing. But um, I think, this, but one of the, the keys to the Grand Orient Lodge and what we call Continental Freemasonry, which also spread to places like Italy and I believe South America and Latin America. Um, and I think John and I think Pope Francis actually had some negative dealings with uh, with Freemasonry in Argentina that was of this yeah. of this kind. Uh, they allowed atheism. Um, mm -hmm. They were atheistic Freemasons. And in a lot of cases, they were actually uh, I mean, based on my research, they were violent. They, uh, you know, when we talk about plotting against the Catholic Church, like this is this is really what they're referring to. So P2 was disaffiliated somehow from the Grand Orient Lodge. So this was sort of like an even more extreme or a break off from that. So this was sort of yeah. an exclusive Italian lodge. Um, yeah. So the, the there was a this involves a person named. Uh, Licio Gelli. Um, he was a Freemason who I believe was part of the Grand Orient, um, or basically a mainstream Italian Freemason. He he had been a hardcore fascist under Mussolini, um, as uh, many of the people we're going to talk about were former fascists. Um, now it's not all that unusual at this time in Italy, but uh, but these guys seem to have maintained a uh, strongly ultra right. Um, type of perspective. Um, so he formed a breakaway Masonic lodge called Propaganda Due. Now I believe that the, the lodge had existed actually before, but he kind of took this lodge over and then reworked it into something that was entirely his own. So it was not authorized. They apparently didn't practice any Masonic ceremonies or rituals like the usual, like none, none of the levels and all the secret knowledge and all that stuff, like unlike traditional masonry. And then unlike traditional masonry as well, it wasn't revolutionary or it was not sort of a uh, liberal orientation. Um, it so was- what was their purpose? It was a far, it was a far right organization essentially. And they, I mean, they basically stood for anti-communism and the maintenance of free market, what I would consider like a sort of gangster capitalism. Um, so they, they were, that was one thing that united them. They were all, you know, intensely anti-communist. Um, and, and there was some communist, uh, you know, influence in Italy at the time. 
how serious it was is, is hard to say. Um, they, they were like communist, like this, this communist party and that sort of thing. But um, they they formed a sort of it's basically a reactionary organi- a organization of reactionary capitalists, people who are in high positions, and they're kind of using this idea of a Freemasonic lodge, um, but it's not really a Freemason lodge. It's 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 basically just a, a secret organization. The members didn't all know each other, like so there was no. Uh, the master list of members was always hidden. They never met at any point in time. Again, unlike normal Masons who have meetings at halls and and that sort of thing. Um, And uh, apparently the way that Jelly would bring people into this, because he wanted all the, the, the people who were kind of high up in the financial, political hierarchy in Italy to be part of this. And so it was, it was largely through blackmail. That was one of his favorite techniques, apparently, um, or helping people get jobs, positions, that sort of thing, or, or, or giving them the impression that he had helped them get a job or a position. So it was, it was like, you know, nepotism, corruption, blackmail. That's how he pulled people into this. And that's eventually why people wanted to become part of it. Now, it's not a conspiracy theory. This is P2 existed. Um, it became a huge scandal in the early 1980s. Um, one of the members was apparently Silvio Berlusconi at that time, who later became um, a major uh, pol- a figure in, in Italian politics a little a little later on as a kind of, you know, it was again, this sort of like gangster capitalism type, uh, right-wing gangster capitalism. That's that's the his sort of style. Um, now, eventually P2 grew and, and it had, major influence in Italy to the point that, you know, some people would say like, there's no way you can get anywhere in Italy without being part of P2. If you really want to get into the upper reaches of, of, of the, you know, the hierarchy here. Um, and apparently they also had influence in some other countries. So in Argentina, this is a little later in the eighties. So like early eighties, apparently the, the Junta that was in control there, there were members of, of P2 involved in this. Um, so in, I think it was maybe Bolivia as well. I'm not, not 100% sure on that. But um, so in this uh, atmosphere, this P2 atmosphere, um, it starts to intersect with the Vatican um, in a number of ways. And it's through finance that this happens. So you get this sort of triangle. I'm going to call it a triangle setup of three major figures. And... The first um, is a guy named Michele Sindona, uh, also known as the Shark. That was his, his nickname. So he was essentially a financier um, connected uh, to the Gambino Mafia family um, who operated in the U.S. and uh, I believe in Italy. Um, he became a f- very good friend of Cardinal Montini, who became um, Pope Paul VI. So after uh, Montini became Pope, Sindona became a financial advisor to the Vatican and and intertwined himself with with Vatican finances. So if you go back in in time a little bit, the Vatican, when they um, made the agreement with with Mussolini that established Vatican City, um, the part of this was, I think it was in compensation for the loss of the papal states, Mussolini gave them a very large sum of money um, that uh, would eventually become the sort of 
base capital for Vatican finances moving forward. So after World War II, the, the, the Vatican actually comes out of this very, with a lot of money. Um, and then I think it's in 19, I hope I'm right on this, but it, the late 1960s anyway, the um, Italian government wants to take away the tax exemption that applies to the profits on um, that the Vatican uh, receives from their investments within Italy. So because they think this is not fair, it's, it's putting a huge drain on the Italian economy. So eventually this happens and the Vatican has to figure out, well, we're not going to get our tax exemption here. We have to diversify. We have to get out of Italy with our money. We have to put our money in other places so it can do its work. Um, and that's where people like Sindona step in. They, they become these sort of, um, I think they, I think Yallop, I think it was Yallop who says it, but they, they call them like kind of trusted men, you know, like people who work for the Vatican there. Um, and, and they, they're, they're these kind of magic workers who can make money. So now the problem is Sindona was basically a genius of fraud. Um, he, he would use like really elaborate systems of connected banks and shell companies to organize operations where he just seemingly pull money out of nowhere. So, uh, you know, more, more complicated than the sort of Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme is really like this really elaborate, um, network of, of banks and shell companies like all over the world. And he's moving things from, from manipulating markets and, and manipulating prices and, and that sort of thing. Now he takes off, he's become this, you know, financial star. He becomes the primary shareholder, um, in the Franklin national bank in the U S um, in the, in the early 1970s. And then that collapses in 1974, and this is the, kind of the beginning of the end of, of Sindona, and a lot of Vatican money um, is lost in the fallout, because again, the Vatican is so intertwined in this, and all of its money is yeah. so intertwined. Um, he gets arrested in 1979, um, after being accused of arranging the killing of a lawyer named Giorgio Ambrosoli, um, who had been trying to unravel the trail of fraud that, that Sindona had left. Um, and then he died in, in 1986 in, in prison after being poisoned with cyanide. Um, so he had earlier tried to kill himself using a, a drug called digitalis, uh, but but it didn't didn't work. Um, but this time it was apparently a hit. Um, he was killed with, with cyanide in his coffee. So this is all real. <laughs> He's very real. Like it, it sounds incredible, but yeah, this guy was a real guy. You can read about him in all the big newspapers and uh, of the time and. Um, so he's one of the three. Another guy is a, a person named Roberto Calvi, and he was known as God's Banker. Um, and he got that nickname because he was the chairman of Banco Ambrosiano, which was a very large Italian bank known for its connection to the Catholic Church. So Calvi, like Sindona, and often in partnership with Sindona, was involved in these elaborate fraud schemes. Um, and after there was a big financial scandal in at the Banco Ambrosiano that he was the chairman of in 1978, he was investigated and put on trial. He appeals, because I guess in Italy, 
just getting arrested and put on trial, that's the first step in a long, endless thing where you get, you know, appeals that last forever and you're walking free and all this kind of stuff, like for, for ages, it's just the usual thing. Um, in 1982, Calvi leaves Italy and um, unexpectedly um, ends up in London, England. And on June 18th, 1982, Calvi, God's, God's bankers, he was known, he's found hanged under Blackfriars Bridge in London. And his pants and his pockets are filled with bricks. So this, this makes... It rocks. Was it bricks? Oh, okay. I had heard bricks, but it might have been it might have been rocks. Uh, yeah, it, he was weighed down essentially. So <laughs> well, I thought it was um, like symbolic. Was the um, I think the well, stones were symbolic of stone masons or something like that. I don't. The, there is an argument that he was maybe killed. I think by um, Freemasons. So by but, but not regular Freemasons again. By propaganda due uh, people who. They knew that because Propaganda Due was all caught up in this as well. Because Sindona and Calvi were both members. They were both, you know, very intertwined with Licio Gelli or Jelly. And a lot of the money they were making, this was all coming into, you know, Propaganda Due through through Jelly. So it became part of this um this this sort of apparatus of power within Italy at the time. So yeah, he's found hanged, um, and then right at this moment, basically, Banco Ambrosiano collapses. It's a major disaster. It takes huge amounts of Vatican money uh, with it. And eventually, in 1984, the Vatican agrees to pay back over $200 million that was owed to the bank's creditors. But And this is interesting. They made an arrangement that they would pay it on the basis of non-culpability but in recognition of a moral involvement. So now, so basically they're, they're saying that, yes, we have a, we had a moral responsibility here that um, means that we should pay back this amount of 200 million, but we don't feel that we were culpable in this. Um, so it's a very tricky sort of um, statement. So, so the, yeah, so you have the shark, Michele Sindona, you have God's banker, Roberto Calvi. And then the third person who enters into this is Bishop Paul Marchinkus. I think he was later made Archbishop Paul Marchinkus. So he's an American bishop from, from Illinois. He you know, grew up in a this very kind of tough working class environment. He was really huge and um, like very tall and big and intimidating. And he, had, he was called the gorilla. That was his nickname. Yeah. And he became a, a bodyguard for uh, Paul VI. Um, he ends up becoming president of the Institute for the Works of Religion, the Vatican Bank, in, in 1971, even though he had no financial experience. So he, he zero you know, financial training, but he, he gets this position and he kept it until 1989. So he was there for quite a long time. So Marchinkus knew Calvi and Sindona well, and he was intertwined with them in ways that are only partially understood. So he was on the board of directors for Ambrosiano Overseas. So this is like a, a division, I guess, of Banco Ambrosiano, which was run by Calvi, because um, Calvi and Sindona had 
arranged to, to make him a, a member of the board of directors to give it an appearance of moral legitimacy because here you have this you know uh person from the the vatican um involved in it um and so over the years he helps the bank the the vatican bank become this financial powerhouse um you know using um working it seems anyway with people like roberto calvi and and michele sindona um in order to uh make money for the vatican so now it's the problem is when you're looking at, at paul marchinkus um it, it's it, he had diplomatic you know like immunity because he was within the vatican that he couldn't be um you know arrested he couldn't be uh you know, it's very difficult for there the is. Italian. There he is. Yes, the the gorilla. Yeah, Paul Paul, Paul Merchinkus. Um, so there were just incredible rumors around him regarding the extent of his involvement with Propaganda Due and and with um, uh, Sindona and Calvi. But I have to admit, it to me, it's not convincing that um, like there's no like kind of smoking gun that would show that he had a really deep, deep involvement. It's it's clear that he was involved. He worked with, with at least with Roberto Calvi very closely. Um, and it seems um, undeniable that he, the way he handled Vatican finances um, allowed for Vatican finances to become very intertwined with the financial operations that these guys ran. And so, made a lot of money for the Vatican, but also compromised the Vatican morally, perhaps because of their involvement in this. And then also, you know, financially, because there were times when they lost a great deal of money, like when Sindona's bank collapsed and when, when Calvi's bank collapsed. So I don't know if that captures the, the sort of overall um, atmosphere there, or the, the overall situation. So, well, and I think can... one of the keys to, to Marchinkus was that he was totally unqualified for this position, right? Like he yeah. had no background in financing or banking or accounting or economics or anything like that. He was, you know, basically a, a bureaucrat who worked his way up and was picked as a, a nice uh, appointment for a job that he, that, you know, had to go to a clergy, a member of the clergy and he was uh, deemed a, a worthwhile candidate. Yeah, and and I think a lot of people at the Vatican probably also don't know a lot about money, and you know, uh, especially like the, the popes, and and so when they see someone like him making money for for the Vatican, and they just think, well, that's good, you know, like what's what's wrong with that? We're making, you know, we're getting some some good returns on our investments, and and uh, what 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 can we say about that? That's nothing. But they don't quite understand that there can be you have to be very careful when you're dealing with that those kind of sums of money and the way that they're used right and and i think it seems like at this time in italy especially it was kind of like wild west when it came to um capitalism there was huge amounts of financial crime and corruption and it extended from italy to other parts of the world as well so um and you know we're still dealing with this kind of thing with Vatican finances, there have been some major scandals. Well, you talk about like London investments and yeah. Elton John movies that Vatican money is was tied up in, and yeah, all kinds yeah, of yeah, yeah. You know, and, and even back then, there was uh, apparently the Vatican had investments in a, a company that um, 
produced uh, birth control pills, right? Uh, and so the, they had to pull out of that when that was, you know, discovered because, you know, the, there's all these ways that you can become sort of morally compromised, right? Um, if you're not careful. So, you know, I think there's always been attempts to rein this in. And, and I believe that John Paul II tried to uh, do this uh, early on. And then um, certainly like Pope Francis uh, has, has tried to do this as well, but it does seem to be a, a battle that, that that has to be fought all the time. And I think it's just because the world of finance is incredibly complex and um i mean it's a bit of an amoral world in some ways right so you have to be as a moral institution you can you can very easily compromise yourself so the way that this all kind of connects to john paul the first is that apparently john paul the first was going to make changes to the vatican bank and call for a sort of transparency that would expose Marcinkus and his connections to Sindona and Calvi. He had been familiar with Calvi because early, I think it was in the, uh, in the 1960s or it might've been, actually, sorry, it may've been in the seventies. Um, it was when he was Archbishop of, uh, Venice. Um, when Luciani was Archbishop of Venice, when, um, Calvi had taken over a bank that, he and a lot of the priests um, used because of the special interest rates they were given um, for because of their uh, you know clerical status. Um, he took it over, and then they lost all this the the special interest rates and um, and you know I think uh, Albino Luciani at the time saw it as a a scandal that this had happened that 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 the. Um, that this bank, uh, Banco Ambrosiano, and this guy Roberto Calvi, who's supposed to be kind of working for the Vatican and respecting the Vatican, that he would he would do this. Um, so the bit of a there's bad a bit of blood blood there already. Um, but the idea is that these reforms that he was going to introduce would compromise Sindona Calvi, and then it would also compromise Licio Gelli, who was leading um, P2, and so this would be the end of their financial empires. It would be the end of P2. Um, potentially. So Yallop suggests that John Paul I was assassinated essentially on the order of Jelly, Calvi, Sendona, or perhaps all three of them, uh, maybe with the involvement of Marcinkus or Cardinal Vio. Um, so if we run with that idea, and, and I'm not saying I believe it, I actually don't think it's likely, but you could you might propose that you know, maybe if, if he was assassinated by these guys, um, if they managed to get someone in to poison his uh, coffee with the digitalis, um, maybe Cardinal Vio found or, you know, someone found the body, realized what had happened, that it had been assassinated, decided to cover it up to avoid scandal. Because, you know, if it was found out that he was assassinated, that might lead people to investigate, that might lead people to find out about Calvi, Sendona, and all the Vatican um, finances and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it might kind of, again, open uh, open them up and make them uh, vulnerable. So he might have tried to cover it up in that sense and make it look like it wasn't an assassination. But that's just another possible angle. And, and um, there's no... Uh, there's no evidence that John Paul I actually had, like, enemies that he had called out or or, or had he as Archbishop of Venice. I mean... I guess that's kind of the question. It's like who who really hated him, as opposed to 
oh, we've had this sudden death. It seems fishy for me, to me. Let me see what, what the possible ways were that this could have been a murder. Yeah, I, I really, I, when you look at it um, realistically, I, I can't see anywhere where he had real enemies, like where people were really out to get him to the point where they wanted to do him physical harm. I think he had, I think there were people who were worried maybe about his um, papacy, about where it would go and what, uh, you know, what was going to happen because he was a bit of a, you know, it was a bit unpredictable at that point where it, what, what direction he would take. Um, you know, maybe there, there were people worried about him, uh, in, you know, looking too hard into Vatican finances or making changes that might expose some shady dealings. But uh, I mean, that's, I just, I, I can't see any of that leading necessarily to murder. Now, there is another angle that fits in with this as well, in that um, around the time, so around the time that he became Pope, um, uh, JP1, um, there's a journalist who named Carmine Pecarelli, um, who, this is a guy who ran this um, sort of gossip rag uh, in Italy, but it was one of these things where he'd kind of like spill this information and publish it. And it would often be like kind of scandalous stuff about politicians or, or finance that was going on. And it, it tended to have like sometimes some relation to truth, like the, you know, a lot of people were paying attention to it because it seemed like he had inside sources. Now it turned out later he was a member of Propaganda Due, um, but he published in 1978, a list of alleged Vatican Freemasons. And if you can find it on traditionalist sites, it's it's called the Pecorelli list. And um, he, uh, I, can't, I can't remember how many people were on the list, you know, maybe it's like a like, good 40 uh, or 50, wasn't it? A good I, 40 I, or 50. Yeah. And, and, you know, with, with some relatively famous names like uh, Baggio, Bonini, Casaroli, um, but also uh, Marcinkus, Paul Marcinkus and Cardinal Vio. Now, there's no way to know if this is based on anything. It, it seems like he was trying to say that these were, these people were regular Freemasons, like not part of Propaganda Due, although Pecorelli himself was part of Propaganda Due. There was a list that was found in the early 80s when the offices of, I believe it was Licio Jelly, were raided. And I think it was a list of about a hundred, or sorry, about almost close to a thousand people who were part of P2. Um, and that actually got out into the public, but I don't believe there were any Vatican. I think there were no clerics on that. Clerics. On that no, website. it was all actually, politicians. I didn't know you were going to bring this up because I know that we were, we were kind of discussing uh, this, this rumored list um, this past week with, with yeah. Nathan Tarowski. Um And, and something we want to go into in a future episode is, is to try to separate what this whole Freemason thing, which, you know, a Catholic conspiracy theory, there are Freemasons. And it's like, well, you know, obviously Freemasons are real. Yeah. Popes have written against it. It's against canon law to be a Freemason. I mean, there, you know, there are real concrete things there, but everything gets blamed on Freemasons. Um, I was able to dig up in, in recent months a list of, um, or not a list, a couple of responses to that list that were in I believe in La Civilta Cattolica, like the official Vatican yeah. newspaper, and written by maybe somebody who was framed about being on the list or who was saying, 
I mean, here's the amazing thing about Catholic conspiracy theories. Like it is a, it's a world that's just large enough that the conspiracy theories begin to touch the culture, but it's not big enough that the debunkers make any noise. If that that makes any sense. Like you look at something like, uh, you know, 9-11 conspiracy theories or, or Kennedy conspiracy theories or moon landing conspiracy theories, huge conspiracy theories. Most people don't even care that it about the conspiracy theory. Then there's like 5% of people who really do believe in this conspiracy theory. And then relative to that number, you know, maybe 10% of that number wants to, is, is willing to do the work to debunk the conspiracy theories. But the problem with Catholic traditionalist conspiracy theories, I find, is that even if the, like these conspiracy theories have survived since the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, like these stories have gotten circulated, these magazines got passed around. And if they did get debunked in the 70s, you've got to dig in and do the research to find the documentation. Like that's something that I, that I'm continually finding. And, and the crazy thing is I find that the best debunkers of conspiracy theories are from other conspiracy theorists who don't like the conspiracy theory because it doesn't favor their side. So like when you take, I found that so often. Yeah. Sede Vacantis, for example, they have all these conspiracy theories about how, uh, you know, leading to this conclusion that John the 23rd was not a legitimate pope. And then, but, and the place where you find the best arguments for why he was a legitimate pope is when you go to the SSPX (laughs) documentation and vice versa. Like, uh, you know, the teachings on the church on whether or not a pope can be a legitimate pope and be a heretic. Like there are a lot of teachings out there that say that. Most ordinary Catholics just sort of take it for granted. Of course, the pope's not a heretic. Like that's silly. Yeah. The Sede Vacantists also believe this, whereas the SSPX believes that the pope is a heretic. So this, but if you go to the Sede Vacantist site, they have like this wealth of, you know theological work and and magisterial teaching that says a pope cannot be a heretic yeah and they're directing it at the sspx so i mean it's it's kind of a funny world or or malachi Martin. That, yeah if anyone's familiar with him and i think we will have to dedicate a show to malachi a show Martin. to him absolutely um, yeah, yeah he was a, a jesuit priest who was active uh during vatican ii left the priesthood ostensibly um although he claims that he was actually he's he was still a priest but he was on a secret mission from paul the sixth and he moved to new york city he was an irishman and he was there to help you know i don't know spy on masons or you know write pulpy novels but it's funny because there's a lot of documentation about him actually getting kicked out of the jesuits for adultery, you know, sleeping with a married woman. And I found all of those documents from, you know, Vatican sources from the Jesuits on a 
strongly anti-Semitic website <laughs> of people that didn't like Malachi Martin because they thought he was an undercover Jewish agent. <laughs> so wow, they're the ones wow. who actually took the time. They're really right, Bill. That's, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's one of the, so, I mean, th that's an area where it's like, I really want to like, well, it it shows that, like, I mean, some of the, these these people who get deep into conspiracy theory, they can do critical thinking and critical work when they're when they're trying to argue against their um, enemies or the you know or trying to debunk um, things that that people are saying about them or the, that that kind of thing. But the, the the thing that they believe in, the thing that's actually driving their conspiracy theories, they they can't apply it to that. Um, but they they can apply it to other things, and it's it's really fascinating. You can end up well, falling down lots of that, rabbit holes. It's, it's it's holding on to that ideology as yeah. as this is what I'm going to hold on to, um, and I'm not going to let go of this. And I no matter what, and all and everything I see, everything I study is gonna. I'm only going to see the stuff that relates back to relates back to that. And I think that's a, yeah. that's a natural human tendency. But if you're Catholic, which, which requires a conscious choice and profession of faith, then yeah. your ground level should be following Christ and the church he founded rather yeah. than if there were KGB agents at the Vatican in 1958 who threatened to nuke unless the right <laughs> papal candidate got elected. Yeah, you have to have a certain level of trust, you know, and that's what Brett Selkeld was talking about before, like a certain level of trust in, um, well, in in, in authorities when it comes to, say, like science and, and just the basic facts, and, and but also some level of trust in the church. I think you have to, um, it doesn't mean you have to think that everything the church does is good or that they never make mistakes or that, you know, but I think you have to start off with at least some level of trust and then um, you can you can then be critical from there, but if you start off with a, an attitude of like radical skepticism, and I think people like Yallop, they really don't have a lot of faith in in the church as an institution, and they see it as just these people are just like anybody else out, out to you know for their own benefit and out to you know. Uh, if you start off with that perspective, you, I think you can um, you can end up becoming too skeptical. You can end up becoming. Well too conspiratorial. And I don't think there's, you know, I think the thing is there are a lot of people out there who, who are Catholic and maybe through their study, their experience, maybe, you know, they witness some corruption. Maybe the, maybe a teaching just doesn't make sense to them. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you're going to reject something like, I mean, that's been my whole point with Pope Francis the whole time. It's like, this is the teaching on the death penalty. The one that Pope Francis put out, it's on the books. It follows all the rules for what is the official Catholic teaching on the death penalty. Mm -hmm. If you doubt that teaching, just be honest with the fact that you're struggling with what yes. the Catholic Church teaches. And, you know, there, but instead it's this, I'm going to try, I'm, I am, what I am is Catholic and I'm going to try to fit everything else into that. You know, I'm going to try yeah. to fit my ideology into that. And if this doesn't fit my ideology, then it's not Catholic, which isn't what yeah. the church teaches. You can't change the actual fact, the actual content. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, keep in mind that the, the church is, is, you know, run by humans. Right. And, you know, um, even though uh, even though this is, you know, 
the church that uh, you know Christ uh, you know uh, gave us uh, it, it, it's still it's still run by humans and even the Pope is a human and people who and it always was humans, run and by it always humans. was it always was run by humans and humans make mistakes and even if they have um, you know even if they're uh, infallible in certain circumstances they can still um, totally mess up in other circumstances right so uh, that, that 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 can happen so I, I, I when I, when I look at all of this I, I you know the, the the impression I get is it's quite possible that the Vatican got itself you know in too deep basically in a world of finance that um, for whatever reason whether through ignorance or through just you know wanting you know someone like Paul Merchink is maybe wanting to just make a lot of money and, and show off, um, you know, got involved too deep with people who are connected to secret societies, to the mafia, to, you know, those kind of things. And I'm sure it still happens. It's quite possible. It's, you know, it's very easy. We know there's financial scandals that have been happening right now that we're, it's still unclear what the, the details of these are, but people make mistakes. There's sometimes bad actors. It happens. Um, and I find it fascinating. So all of this stuff that 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 Yala outlined, it really is fascinating. It shows you the the cultural context of Vatican life at that time, which is just crazy. Because you know, like I mean, this person uh, Pecarelli, who published this list of Vatican Freemasons, he ended up being assassinated, killed in his uh, shot to death in his car. Uh, by apparently a, a radical left-wing organization, but who may have been hired by a right-wing organization, <laughs> by or maybe Propaganda Due, or who knows what, you know, like, so that's the kind of atmosphere you get in uh, Italy, it seems, right? And the Vatican is like right in the middle of all that. Um, so I, I don't know if it's quite the same today, but it seemed like in the 70s and 80s, it was, it was very much like that. And that's, it's all documented stuff. But again, it's a big stretch to, make the assumption that all of this lined up into a conspiracy to take out the pope it's it's almost like it's hard to it's hard to imagine that that even you know the most hardened um sort of mafia style mind would think that you know this would be a good idea to to try to take out the pope i think there would be a million other things they would try to do first and pull it off successfully go. but that's and yeah and to pull it off successfully it's um, so again, it, a lot of this is unfalsifiable. Um, basically it's whether or not you kind of buy into Yallop's argument and I buy into some of what he's saying. It's fascinating stuff. It's cool. It's, um, you know, it's, it's like Godfather type material, right? Um, I don't just don't quite buy into the, the idea that John Paul the first was that connected to this. Uh, when it, I brought up the, the Pecorelli list though, because apparently, you know, Yallop says that he was going to um basically reorganize the, the Vatican and um the people who he was taking out of their posts including people like Marchinkus people like Cardinal Vio were people who had been on this list um now I don't know if there's really any evidence that uh John Paul the first ever saw that list although I guess this Pecorelli, his magazine was passed around Italy a lot. Like it was, a, like people knew about it. It was a big thing. Um, so it's likely, but whether he would have believed it, whether he would have, you know, we don't know if, if it was, we have no idea if the list was all true, if it was half true, or if, if it was completely false. There's no, we just don't know, unfortunately. And so until like more evidence comes along, I'm just going to say, 
I don't think these people were directly involved in the death of, of John Paul I. Um, and I think, you know, if we, it's the, the most boring option, I think, but, you know, after all the stuff we've looked at with the idea of people who are afraid of him um, changing Catholic teaching on uh, birth control or who are afraid of him um, challenging the authority of the Curia or taking the Freemasons out of the Vatican or exposing the financial dealings of Paul Marchinkus. Um, in the end, even though all of that sort of fascinating context and, and there's probably like more than a few grains of truth in some of it, um, in the end, I don't see why we have to jump to the conclusion that his death was anything but natural. That's, uh, I think that's you know, your story I, I, and your that's 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 the story. Yeah. Um, so but we're, anyway, we're way over time. We're way um, over time. It's, so, yeah. uh, you know, more, more intrigue and, and excitement. Um, Jose Rodriguez wants to know, Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe maybe next week we'll talk about that one, Jose. Uh, yeah, uh, we'll skip that one for now. We'll skip that uh, one but, for now. But um, <laughs> he's suggesting a, another. He's inventing a conspiracy theory right now. Um, anyway, uh, if you like Critical Catholic, if you like where Peter is, if you like where Peter is live, Peter's Field Hospital, if you like the work that we're doing, please consider becoming a Patreon sponsor. We had a Patreon live party, I guess, a uh, happy hour conference call this week uh, with a bunch of participants uh, among the contributors and uh, the patrons. People got to sort of share their stories and, and uh, you know, we had a, we had a, a nice little conversation and uh, we'll people. be doing great people from uh, New Zealand, Australia, Spain, Gareth, Gareth Thomas got up and, and watched it live or joined us live from Spain at like two in the morning. Um, anyway, until next time on The Critical Catholic, God bless and take care. <laughs>